This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. The time on the clock is 8 minutes past the hour of 10 o'clock. Thank you, Tuntantla Sihume and Lebohang Pukela, the gentleman driving us into the day, the day's agenda, and keeping us safe on the roads. Okay, so uh, we're going to be having a news and review uh, with political analyst and public policy specialist at the Witz School of Governance, Dr. Kahiso T.K. Boe, uh, who is a familiar voice on the program. Dr. Boe, good morning. Uh, good morning, and uh, I think it's too late to say compliments. I wanted to say the same to you. <laughs> I think we still can. It's lovely to see you and speak to you again in 2024. I hope it's a blessed new year for you. Yeah, same to, uh, same to you. Okay, so I mean, I know you've chosen your selection of issues we should talk about, but I just wanted to raise the fact that right now I'm looking at the television and apparently it's all kicking off in Phoenix, KwaZulu-Natal, and the residents there Uh, protesting on service delivery and they want, they're calling for the head of the executive mayor of Eteguini. Are these scenes we're going to be seeing more frequently in this election year, do you think? Uh, yes, I think this was bound to happen. If you actually look at Eteguini over the last two years, mm. with its, uh, I think it is a coalition of sorts that's there. Mm. Uh, that, that area of Devon literally has just seen a degradation of services and infrastructure. So mm. this was bound to happen and I think Look, it also probably adds to the drama of the ANC that they've really just lost, I think, one of the pearls of uh, of the country. Because if you look at the big metros of the country, uh, Etiquini is supposed to be one of them. And over the last two or three years, it's just gone into deter- mm. uh, bad deterioration. If you remember, even last year, there was a, I think, I'm not sure if it's, a, it's not the Glenwood, but yeah. it's one of the suburbs, uh, the, yeah. the homeowners associations were actually withholding rates. Yes, putting it in a trust account. Yeah, so it, it's one of the issues you, you t- you're going to see more of as mm-hmm. if you're not dealing with service delivery as a municipality, citizens are going to start rising up. Now, I think the, the key issue for me is always, look, it, it's good that they're organized, but I, it would be good if it's a, it's a greeny-white thing because I think there does need to be pressure uh, borne upon the fact that, listen, if you are in, in positions of leadership, mm-hmm. and you know, I never call them leaders. I just say they can happen to hold a position of leadership you should actually be getting this right because I think there's enough revenue mm. from that municipality that they, they should not be going through these things. Maybe that's the problem, actually, the semantics. And I, you know, sidebar, a leader is the strategic head of a team of managers. There can't be a thousand leaders. There can be only one chief at the top and then everybody else must be executing the vision. And I think this is the problem is we don't have enough effective managers At municipal level, councillors don't see themselves as managers. They see themselves as leaders. And, and that's exactly right. And also just also runs down even to, to the administration. I, I always say this. It's not that there's a lack, as you say, there's not a lack of managers. If that was the case, we wouldn't have a thriving public sector and, some, and a thriving private sector and other types of sectors. There's mm. enough people who can do their job. Unfortunately, as you say, there's a, those that don't have the necessary management or leadership positions become scared. If, let's say, for... If a Lerato is there to say, look, you're doing it the wrong way. This is how you're supposed to do it. It's almost as though they take it as an affront to their lack of their inability. And until we get to the point where we can say, listen, there is a leader. There are managers. And most important, you see, at a council level, if you're mm. in an MP or even a minister, I always say, look, you're in a position of service to country. You, yeah. you, your ego, <laughs> we don't yeah. really care about your ego. You're yeah. supposed to be of service to us. 
And I, I don't think that's really dawned on a lot of politicians yeah. in South Africa that they are off service to us. It's the other way around. We Apparently, we are serving them. And uh, I think until we really change that around. Minange, minama rockstar nyawazi, Beyonce and Pella. He's no counselor who's a rockstar. Our politicians really believe they're rockstars. It's in the back of their minds, they're like, no, no, they're equivalent, if not higher. No ways. Okay, let's get into other issues of the day. So the ICG, uh, ICJ ruling. Um, and uh, Ronald Lamula says it bolsters South Africa's ICC case against Israel. Now, I just want us to focus on Ronald Lamula, who was there when the when the South African case was presented, now saying we have now been bolstered. So in other, in other words, they were there to kickstart a process. This was not the end and be all. This was to uh, shine a light on atrocities in Ghana, shine a light on obligations to international law and Geneva conventions, see whether the judges believe that we have incongruence we have a problem and if they do now you can bring a case forward is that the process yes and i, and I like the way you surmise it which is to say look the key issue and i think the, the hope is that this is what uh, minister Lamola is speaking about that look uh, at first people are saying uh, especially countries such as uh, i think the united kingdom and also the united states that there's nothing to see here this is not a case and it should be thrown out so in, the, in that in that regard there is a case and it's been found through legal means that there is a case. I think if that's what he means, yes. And the point you're saying about kickstarting, I think it's something which people, sometimes it kind of gets missed in the, the analysis that this is, this is not what we're used to in South Africa, that this is going to take one year, two years. If I'm not mistaken, people are saying this might even take four Seven to five years. years. Yeah. And within four to five years, mm-hmm. the key question I'd have to probably ask this, to so say even going into 2029, is how much, what type of South African government we get post the election and what the appetite of this is going to be. Because while, look, uh, it's one of the few areas where the ANC in terms of service delivery has really kept to the promises of the 90s, I do think a lot of things have yet to happen in South Africa where people, and I think you'd be best to tell us about this, where international relations is part and parcel. This issue is more historical than anything Mm -hmm. else, but it would be interesting to see how many South Africans really pay attention to this over the long haul. Yeah, okay. Uh, But... The, the 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 one caveat here is that the ICJ made its provisions, said to Israel, you've got your sovereign right to defend yourself, but you have to do it within the parameters of international law. They did not say anything about a ceasefire. Minister Pandor says she's disappointed by that, but nonetheless, they've been emboldened by the 15 to 17 uh, judges finding in favor of South Africa's argument. So... A ceasefire would mean you stop the war. The ICJ did not say stop the war. They said stop Sumeric killings of children, women, vulnerable people, because that makes it look like a genocide. But they did not say stop the war. And I think this, this is always going to be the point that they're going to try to cut it down the middle, which is to say, look, you have to respect the state's, uh, I guess, with lack of better, ability to exercise its sovereignty. And in this case, it'd be sovereignty of what they believe is an existential threat to them. And they base it, and I guess the proof would say they base it on what happened on October 7th. So, so that's one side. Uh, but the other one, and I think this is, look, it's, it's, I always say, just say this up in front, it's not really my area of expertise. It's one of those topics which I, too, am also just a, 
learning about. But there was a point, if you look at who the Israeli government brought in the legal defense, they brought a lot of generals, people who are actually military experts. And I think that's the one thing I've heard. Even uh, certain, I think it's one commentator, Mr. King, who is a former ambassador in South Africa. He raised this point as this was going on to say maybe that's where the South African legal team missed it in that they didn't have expert military individuals to actually just make a case. In Israel, if you remember how they defended it, they brought in a lot of uh, military expertise. And maybe that's what sort of swung it towards their side to say, look, this cannot be a ceasefire based on military things. Because sometimes I think we forget that militarism is a, it's a science all on its own. And you kind of do need people who can explain to you what the heck is happening. And on that side, I think we have to give the Israeli, you know, the government, the people they brought kind of help their case a bit. But yeah. I think the key thing, and this is where the hope would be that, look, this should lead to talks. And South Africa, hopefully, now can also start now approaching the Israeli government. Say, guys, yeah. this just cannot go on any longer like this. It's just it's not bearable for just people, yeah. you know, I think for the globe. And I hope that's where, yeah. behind this, you know, the sidebars, as you say, yeah. I hope that's yeah. where these things okay. are going forward. I don't, I don't want to belabor this, but I'm just remembering um, my undergraduate years studying international relations and the principle that was taught which are two Latin principles, jus ad bellum, which is the fact that when two sovereign nations are involved, um, their conduct will be regulated by a United Nations, but, uh, but their sovereignty is not superseded by a United Nations. So that's the first thing. And so there is a jus ad bellum rules are those things we're talking about in those conventions, which are basically conditions that describe how a state may resort to war. When do you wake up and say, I've been so provoked, I have a right to defend my borders and my people. So what are those conditions? They are spelt out. And then once you've declared war, there are the principles called jus ad bello, which is how you regulate the behavior in armed conflict. And the Geneva Conventions are jus ad bello rules, which says... Now that you two have decided that there is a legitimate reason for you as two sovereign nations to go to war, there are rules how you do it. And those rules are you cannot summarily target civilians. You cannot create a military target out of civilian populations. And they are fair and they are quite easily written out. And once you've signed up to those rules as a member state of the United Nations, you have to observe that. And that's what South Africa was saying. No, no, that's that's very, very true. I guess maybe the only probably addendum one would have to just add to that. And I guess this is what makes it a bit complicated and maybe allows for the Israeli state to, I think we could call all the Greek kind of scarce, the normal rules of, of war is, and I think you've mentioned it, it's state to state. And now depending on your understanding of where Palestine is, I think they, they kind of broad strokes kind of take advantage yes. of the fact that it's not really a state. It's supposed to be yeah. a state. And I think what's more worrying, and as you've raised these points, is what was the Israeli prime minister's wording before that judgment came on? Yeah. To say, look, he's the understanding all along, and I think it's good that it's out in the open, was that it's supposed to be a two-state solution. But from what, he, yeah. from what we've heard from him, that to be the least of what he wants. Yes. And I think yeah. it's what kind of... A lot yeah. of what you've just said, the, the ruling's a bit hard. Yeah. Well, Israel has a higher moral obligation here because they are the nation state actor in the story. They are the signatory to some of these rules as a UN member state. Um, and this is why also Judge Navi the other day, Pele, explained that when we're seeking justice on the Hamas side, it would have to, the 
ICC would kick in as the International Criminal Court because that doesn't have jurisdiction on states, it has jurisdiction on individuals. And so you could, if you believe that there were serious atrocities on the Hamas side, then bring the generals to the ICC. But on the country-to-country side, everybody must go to the ICJ as member states of the UN. I thought that was very illuminating that day. No, it wasn't. I think it's something probably the hope, and as I said, the hope which I think South Africa should be also leaning towards and speaking to. And I think the other part, and I'll say the part which is also quite missing, and I'm hoping shows like yours will also touch on is, I wouldn't say the reticence, but I think the the missing link of the other Middle East countries. Yeah. You know, their ability to be saying, listen, guys, we should actually be helping Palestine become an actual state. Mm-hmm. While it's good for South Africa, and I said, historically, this is yeah. well understood within the parlance of ANC policy yeah. and history. But for me, the missing element, and I think we, and I think DECO, and there's also the ANC does need to start question, where is Saudi Arabia, where is Qatar? And to be fair, Saudi Arabia has issued a statement yesterday uh, about the de-escalation because they don't want this war to spill over into the rest of the region and that uh, the right of Palestinian self-determination cannot in any way be in question. But uh, they should be leading the the charge. Uh, the Qataris are also involved very much in the diplomacy of bringing together some of the uh, Hamas points of view. But we could be seeing more. Let's move on, though. The ANC tries to change party funding bill for a bigger slice of the election funding to the detriment of small parties. So, so says the City Press uh, in an article in the newspaper. So my understanding is this, Dr. T.K. Boy. There is a party political party funding bill and i think in 2018 there were amendments to it i don't i'm not sure but basically it allows that political parties that are represented in parliament can be funded some way by the treasury so there can be an allocation from the state to all political parties that actually have seats in parliament after that they can go and fill up the balance from donors etc and then there are rules that the IEC spelled out how you declare that party, uh, that, that, that private funding. But how the Treasury allocates the money to those who are represented in Parliament is based on proportional representation. So if you've got 200 seats in the chamber, then you get X percent versus the people of two seats in the chamber. Um, so what is the proposal of the amendment then to this? Well, uh, from uh, I think what one has seen that the key contention, especially for those who actually fought for the bill to be changed or the rules to be changed, is is the disclosure issue, right? Which I think at the moment the threshold is if you if you were to donate as an external party, let's say a, an individual private company, mm. if you were to donate anything over a hundred thousand, you need to declare. Mm. So there's a I think one of the key issues they're looking at is a changing of saying, look, must it be a hundred thousand, or you must take into consideration things like inflation changes and the like, which would basically could mean that, listen, it's no longer 100,000 where you need to declare. You can almost put it at, let's say, two or 300,000, meaning you can kind of uh, oh, build it yeah. up a bit to say, okay, listen, <laughs> uh, if we make it 300,000 based on an economic formula, yeah. speaking to Treasury, you know, then you can, basically, if I was comfortable donating to Party X yeah. at, uh, I'd probably say, what, 299? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't have to be disclosed. So it's looking at that one. But looking at this, and I think it's something which is a bit controversial, so I'll just put it out there, which is to say the idea that, you know, smaller parties are disadvantaged. Uh, Dr. Boa, we've lost you there. 
Um, can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. So the idea that smaller parties are disadvantaged? Sort of have a little problem with it because it's, at the end of the day, it's the votes that you get that determine the formula, right? Mm. And for me, the bigger issue, and, and I, I don't think it's something which is going to be settled now. If anything, I think the, the elections are going to make it murkier to say, I believe if South Africa had five solid, and here five, I'm speaking about parties outside the African National Congress, five mm. solid opposition political parties which were ideologically clear, there would be more to go around because the idea at the moment that we have think it's over 300 parties or more that are registered kind of murkies the water for funding. And mm. even if you want to as an individual give funding too, it, it just becomes a bit problematic. So I think the issue is not so big a party will get and obviously the making of the water we can, because that's the debate that's at hand. But I think the bigger issue is to say, why aren't we going towards a system where we have, look, at least, let's say, 10 parties in parliament. Because I think the number we have at the moment makes it hard to really get a substantial amount that can help you challenge a governing party. Okay, so I just want to make sure I've understood you correctly. So it is, one, it is to do with disbursements according to proportional representation, which you're saying the formula is not right, is not not great. And then the second issue is the threshold on the private party funding side. So at the moment, if anybody funds your organization above 100,000 rands, we have to know who they are. So anybody below, we may not know who they are, but above 100,000 rands, we need to know who they are. And so what they are saying is, if you consider inflation, 100,000 rands last year doesn't go as far as 100,000 rands this year, for instance, because of inflation. So maybe we should push up the threshold to 300,000 rands because at 300,000 rands, it's almost like saying you received 100,000 rands. It's almost that value. And so if you push up the quantum of contribution, then only those people would have to declare. So in other words, you're now saying anybody who's donated 100,000 or 200,000 does not need to declare. It's only starting at the 300,000, which then would which then would uh, make it opaque for all those who are funding right now above 100,000. Is that what you're saying? And that's one, it's only one of, of, the, of the key elements, which is more interesting. Because I just use the number, a fictitious number, yeah. 300,000. Yeah. But it could be more. And yeah. I think that's what many of the people, I can't remember the organization that brought the lawsuit that went all the way up to the Constitutional Court are fighting for. And the wedding is that, look, it will make it very opaque. But just as I understand, a lot of the bigger parties have suffered from, which is a, a, an oddity in a democracy because they're supposed to have some level of clarity. Mm. But I think as they make the argument that, look, people want to be associated with certain political parties and they would rather withhold their money. Mm. kind of creates a new debate which is to say well why aren't they happy to associate with you and mm. but again i always say look at what happens to the republicans and the democrats yeah. you can say what you want failures of american democracy but yeah. at least you sort of know who people. and where people stand ideologically okay uh let me ask you to talk us through an issue we're going to deal with in depth at 11 o'clock but i think it's becoming a real concerning issue um south african doctors not being able to absorb in the public health care system but over and above that, many of them leaving the country. So I was really intrigued uh, at the report, which looked at a sample figure of 500 or so graduates uh, 10 years ago. And if you work with that figure, uh, 89% actually chose to stay in South Africa and nearly 7% opted to leave. And that all happened over a five-year period uh, in this report that was published in 2019. So if you adapt these figures to the context today, do we really have a brain drain issue in this country? 
a growing issue. And look, obviously, I'll just put it out there. The first issue, which was the NHI, and we're going to see this great pay basically being taken to a constitutional court. It's the issue of, I have a feeling sometimes the state looks at doctors more of a, of a rather resource and they forget that look, it's actually a business at the end of the day. So that's one thing. But also the internal condition working in the public sector for, for doctors, right? Mm-hmm. Oh. From my, as I said, my anecdotal experience of, can you hear me? Yeah, we're struggling, but let's try ahead, press, press on. So the first issue is the fact that this year the NHI officially comes into law. Uh, it will take a bit more time to build it into a full structure. But now that it's in law, it's going to impact how doctors see public health care, the demands of public health care, um, the workload in public health care, the conditions. So that's the one variable. Next. And the other issue is the internal working of the, Now we're thinking about doctors who actually choose to leave. With, and it's not like people who just leave are at, the, at, a, at a small grade. We're talking about specialists, people who actually make the system run, you know, to be able to have, a, to have those very complex operations. If you speak to them, and having studied and had friends who've done this, the key issue they say is, is not that they want to, that, look, when you sometimes have to go to even some of the top hospitals and there's no labs, Mm. You have to care of service, but you cannot because the services are not great. That's problematic. And then the third issue, which, as you said, this report sort of highlights, and it's a bit of a weird thing that if you look at all the numbers and reports, they tell us we do need doctors in the system. So it kind of speaks to a public sector, which we really do need to query the issue of how are they understanding human capital development? Mm. And unemployed, if one doctor is unemployed, it's a bit of a, oh, okay, look, let's really look at it. Maybe it's personal issues, maybe it's other issues. But this amount of number in a developing country and in a in a globe where people are literally, states are searching and hunting for doctors, it kind of should be warning us that something bigger is at play within the public sector. And I think this is, I think, government is, I don't want to say they're reticent, because I think they've had two ministers of health, including this one, who I think sometimes put party ideology above actually understanding how is this the point. And I think until we really get to the nub of it, to say, look, there's something big at play here. Because I always say this, the key areas of South Africa excels is a brilliant financial services sector, mm. as seen by the fact that our people can just get jobs anyway. And secondly, South Africa produces the best doctors in the world, without doubt. So the key issue is if they are producing this exportable skill, mm. but the skill also wants to stay in South Africa, there's a bit of something we need to there's investigate. disconnect. And I think sometimes government takes more of an ideological positioning as opposed to actually let's look at an empirical data. Yeah. And the data just really tells us that sometimes are leaving or unemployed because the public sector is not really paying attention to what's yeah. happening. Okay, that's something we're going to be looking at in depth at um, 11 o'clock. Uh, just staggering numbers. Over 1,000 qualified doctors, uh, jobless and no prospect of being absorbed into the public health care system. So we've got an unemployment crisis in South Africa. It's very serious. But we've got an unemployment crisis affecting some of the most skilled members of our society at a time where we know, because every day we read about it, we hear about it anecdotally, the public health care system is overburdened. So there is a demand for the medical skill, and yet the medical personnel are sitting at home. Something is not make sure. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.